This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Uh, I think you might be disappointed if you've come to actually find out what Brexit means. Um, it means we, Brexit. Brexit means, means Brexit. Brexit. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Prime Minister was very clear. The Prime Minister was very clear. Um, if you want to tweet, if that's your thing, uh, if you could use the hashtag #RedBoxDebate, that would be great. Um, you are being filmed this evening, and you'll be able to watch yourselves back uh, online tomorrow. Uh, we're also recording tonight uh, the Redbox podcast. This week uh, is going to be with a live audience, so uh, please do not swear. And uh, you'll be able to, again, uh, listen to that, download that on all of your uh, devices uh, tomorrow. Um, which is why I'm now going to do a sort of slightly more formal uh, introduction. So pretend all of this was just warm-up. And uh, we're going to begin now. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to this special... So you've ruined it already now. <laughs> just be quiet, be quiet. Hello, and welcome to this special Red Box podcast recorded live at a Times Plus event at the News Building in front of an audience of 250 Times readers. When this event was first planned, we expected to be discussing the ongoing Tory leadership battle and the merits of Theresa May versus Andrea Leadsom as a future Prime Minister. But now it seems politics only travels at lightning speed, and less than three weeks after Britain voted by 52% to leave the EU and David Cameron announced his decision to quit, Theresa May crossed the threshold of number 10, promising... Brexit means Brexit. So, as Theresa May marks her 50th day in charge, we've assembled some of the Times' greatest political minds to ask them if they know what Brexit means Brexit actually means, and whether the Prime Minister can deliver on her promise to make a success of it. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Times columnist Matthew Paris, columnist Alice Thompson, and sketchwriter Patrick Kidd. Uh, welcome to you all. Can you put your hands up if you voted for Remain in the referendum? <laughs> Excellent. You're loyal Times readers. You all did what, you all did what the leader told you. And uh, if you voted Leave. Uh, and finally, hands up if you're pleased that Boris Johnson's our Foreign Secretary. <laughs> 50 day, by the way, today is Boris Johnson's 50th day as Foreign Secretary, and we're still not at war. <laughs> Uh, we don't know. The planes might come over. No, just, and just as a, as a taste of tomorrow's uh, Times Diary, which I also write, I spoke to John Major once, who did 94 days as Foreign Secretary in, uh, in 1989. And he said, it was a glorious period. We didn't declare war on anyone. <laughs> 
There's, st there's still time for Boris in that case. <laughs> um, let's rewind, though. Let's go back to uh, June the 23rd. Let's start with you, Matthew. Why do you think Britain voted to leave the EU? I think the Remain campaign was, was weak. In retrospect, it's easy to speak in retrospect, it, it was negative. I don't think anybody dared in the Remain campaign to make a really positive case for Europe being a good thing. But I do think that uh, immigration, to which the Remain people really never had an answer, I think immigration was probably what, what swung it. I, I would have thought that a, a quarter, at least a quarter of those who voted Remain, perhaps more, uh, immigration was the, the main reason. And because Remain had, who voted to leave, because Remain had no answer, the immigration issue just got bigger and bigger and bigger as, uh, as the day approached. Uh, so to what extent do you think the result tells us something about the country that you don't even really get from general elections or I think it tells us a lot about the country. I, I, I got it totally wrong myself, but I, I spent a lot of time in Devon and I was asked to do a piece about um, being in Devon and what people in Devon thought about the referendum. And I came back and I said, <coughs> 43 out of 44 of the people I talked to you know, this weekend all said they wanted to leave the European Union. But don't worry, it's okay, because in Exeter, I think they feel differently. And actually, what happened was Exeter was the only place in the whole of the West Country that voted to remain. The whole of the rest of the West Country decided they wanted to leave. And I think that was the big problem that we didn't really get in London, is that I do think it was more than just immigration. I think there was a sense of a divided country. And it's almost become cliched now, but I think there is some truth in it that people felt very, very distance from London and what was going on. And they felt that Londoners had drawn away from them and that the big cities were a very different place from where they lived. And I think it was a protest vote in that sense. Um, Patrick, you've spent a lot of time going around uh, speeches and launches and that sort of thing during the campaign. Why is it that one old Etonian, Boris Johnson, managed to connect with the public better than the other old Etonian in David Cameron, who seemed to be on an endless whirlwind of events and speeches and stunts and tweeting and the, the more we do, the less impact it seems to be having. Yes, well, not all Etonians are the same. Justin Welby's an old Etonian is different again. I, I suppose um, Boris Johnson is just a, a force of nature and he has a sort of certain charm. Some people loathe him, of course, but, but he makes it personal. David Cameron, though, made this referendum very much about him. He decided from an early stage... He was going to lead the fight. It was going to be his, his battle. He was going to sell this awful fudge of a, a renegotiation that's a what thin gruel, as Jacob Rees-Mogg called it. Um, and then I remember being outside Downing Street on the day he resigned, and he said, I fought this election the only way I know how. And I wrote in my sketch, yes, by stirring up negative feelings and refusing to debate with anyone who had a different view. <laughs> um, well, it worked in the Scottish referendum and the general election. Mm. But um, I, I think there is a problem because Cameron has a belief, and it's understandable, he's been a very successful politician, he's won two elections and two referendums before this one, that he can turn it round. And, and on this occasion, I think he just didn't get that it needed more than him. It needed the, the leader of the Labour Party to pull his finger out. Corbyn made very little effort, and when he did, it was half-hearted. Um, but he also needed to, to get business engaged more and to start making a really positive case. We had, do you remember Stuart Rose was the the man who was in charge of M&S was supposedly in charge of the campaign, and then he disappeared as soon as he forgot what the campaign was called. Didn't he, call, he called it Better Off in Britain, Better Stronger Britain, Britain Best, Better Stronger. 
he later said it's just as well that I didn't have that mistake when I was in charge of Marks and Spencer's or I'd have been calling it S&M. <laughs> 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 one of the best lines of the campaign. Um, but I think that's the problem, that Cameron fought it all himself and it was negative and people don't like to, to vote for something that's negative. To what extent do you think it's changed, this is, uh, any of you, it's changed the way that politics is done? Because neither campaign showed themselves in glory in terms of the numbers that they used, the claims that they made. It was sort of, it, it felt like, the, hopefully, the low point in the way that politics is, is conducted. Do you think that? I think Project Fear was very much seen as having succeeded in Scotland. And I think everyone felt that Scotland had been a very successful campaign when in retrospect maybe it hadn't been as successful as we thought and it was more about canny Scots looking at the economy <laughs> than actually you know, George Osborne terrifying them all into submission. And I think that gave him a very full sense. I also think that gave Cameron a full sense of being a lucky politician. And I think he very much felt by that stage he was. You know, he'd won an election, he'd won the referendum, he'd won the, you know, the AB referendum a long time ago. You get the he sense felt lucky. When you speak to people who were inside Britain's Stronger Inn, uh, they say that it, you know, it was basically it was taken over by the number 10 operation. Mm -hmm. They said, don't worry, we know what we're doing. You know, you, you've got your ideas, that's fine, but you're Labour and Lib Dems and you lose elections and we win them. And that was, they were determined that's how they were going to do it. I, I think it, it lowered the level of, of political debate in Britain. Uh, it, it, a, a, a sort of cynicism entered the way we talk about politics and the way we talk about campaigning on both sides. Uh, both sides told whopping untruths in, in a, a completely insouciant kind of way. And, and nobody seemed to complain. It was as though you could just now lie if you believed strongly enough in the result <laughs> that you were, you were seeking. Uh, on, the, uh, on the positive side, even now, I, I'm finding uh, you travel on buses and trains, hearing people talking about politics all the time. Uh, it, it used to be very difficult to interest. Uh, many of our readers were interested, but to interest the nation at large in politics was, was quite tough. Now, all these terms are on everybody's lips. That's maybe not a bad thing. And that's, that's only true of what happened in Scotland, the, the mm. political engagement and you know, its party membership of the SNP. I mean, even the Tories are saying that their party membership is up 50,000 since, yes, since uh, Theresa May took over. So let's, let's, let's skip on a bit uh, further. So Theresa May, um, well, no, let's, let's, let's talk about that incredible four weeks from the uh, referendum to when everyone just wants to go and have a lie down <laughs> when uh, <laughs> Parliament broke for recess. I mean, it was... Um, uh, you started off with David Cameron resigning, and then it just sort of triggered a whole series of do dominoes we didn't even know existed started uh, falling over. What did you, what did you make of that, that period, Patrick? Well, it was, it was non-stop, and I, I wonder what on earth Cameron and his family must have felt, and those who worked in Downing Street, because he went from thinking, I'm going to be leaving here in three years' time, to then suddenly losing the referendum, and quite rightly, I think he made the right decision that he had to resign the next day, not least because let, let them clear up their own mess. Um, but he, he, even then he thought, I've got three months to sort out a legacy to do a G20. Then suddenly the, the Tory leadership contest was wrapped up really quickly. And there was a sudden audible whoosh that went across Westminster at the very moment that Andrea Leadsom said she was um, withdrawing, which was all the political editors of the newspaper saying, thank God I can have a holiday now. <laughs> <laughs> the EasyJet's website crashed. Yes, exactly. people, uh... <laughs> it, it was quite bizarre. And in, in the midst of this, you had the Labour coup going on, of course. And we had suddenly had... Um, 
what was it, 13 in the course of 24 hours resigned, then more continued and more continued. People we didn't know existed started resigning. Yes. And then people that we did know existed but were quite baffled why they were in the shadow cabinet ended up with three jobs. Yeah. Paul Flynn at 81 finally got into the shadow cabinet 25 years after his last on the front bench and now has two jobs in the shadow cabinet. And frankly, as he said himself, he, w he would have played on, on the, the left wing for Wales in the European Championship if they'd asked him. But um, it's, it's, it went very weird. We had, we had politicians marching on Downing Street. Not and the Andrea, what do we want? Led some for leader. When do we want her now? And that was a low point of the whole four weeks. It was all the time. Even she, I think, was, uh, she got in a car and drove off, I think, and just <laughs> left them uh, trailing along. Uh, there was this one amazing, I think, for me, the most amazing day was the one that started when we thought it was just going to be Theresa May launching a leadership campaign. And then not Michael Gove announced he was doing his without telling anyone. Then you had Boris Johnson uh, dramatically pulling out, and we thought he was then dead as a political force because we now know nothing. Uh, and in the afternoon, Jeremy Corbyn compared Israel to ISIS, and it was about the 25th <laughs> most interesting story of the day. Matthew, have you, have you seen anything like it? No, but I think... If, <laughs> I think if one were really coolly logical and had kept uh, an absolutely cool nerve through the whole thing, perhaps one wouldn't have been surprised. Theresa May given that David Cameron was going to resign, was the only credible successor to David Cameron. Boris Johnson just isn't and wouldn't have been credible. Michael Gove isn't and wouldn't have been uh, credible. Uh, Andrea led, led some likewise. So if one had had total confidence in, in one's logical grip uh, of British politics, one might have just sat back and said, they'll all melt away and it'll be Theresa May. But, but I didn't and I... Don't but also, it was extraordinary that. because she wasn't Brexit. I mean, yes. in the end, we assumed that it had to be a Brexiteer mm. that was going to lead the Tory party, was in fact, she had played a blinder the whole way through. She really had refused to talk about anything at all. Mm. And she was more lukewarm than Jeremy Corbyn, even. <laughs> she did two events during the entire referendum campaign. Yeah. And at one, she, it was basically an anti-EU speech she made, talking about how she hated the ECJ and how she would renegotiate, um, well, she would, she would call for tougher immigration controls. And I saw Nick Timothy, who at the time was just a sort of non-entity head of a think tank, but is now the Downing Street Chief of Staff afterwards. And I said, yeah, I'm wondering whether Theresa, in a couple of years' time, might be playing her way into being Prime Minister. And he said, well, it's taken you long enough to work that out. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly, a month later, there she was. Well, yeah. Rachel Sylvester and I were thrilled because we got an interview with her. And then the aide said to us, this was during the campaign, said you know, a couple of hours before, she'll talk about anything apart from Brexit. We were, and you realised that she was very, very good at it. She yeah. talked about the police for an hour. Yeah. Very good. The, the, the pop group. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that period, uh, when we sort of came out of it and the dust settled, it just felt a bit like Theresa May was sort of the last grown-up standing, who, and sort of everyone just thought, finally, there's somebody, someone, who might be able to get a grip on this and... and, hmm. and implement whatever was supposed to happen. Well, there is a very good survey that came out, actually, that has won the psychological survey of the year. But what it, it said was that in times of crisis, people do vote for women. They never vote for women normally. But if something goes really wrong in a company, <laughs> or somewhere else, they like the mother figure. And she is. <laughs> 
the ultimate mother figure, really. I mean, yeah. that's what she's good at. Even Ter Cleaning up the mess the men have created. Teresa, <laughs> as Matthew pointed out, it's a brilliant name because it, you know, it sums up the sort of saint. It sums up the kind of... Everything about it is utterly ideal, isn't it? And then, you know, her walking holiday in Switzerland and the fact that she didn't even have to make it up. She goes to the same place as Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> she says Elizabeth I is her role model. I mean, it's ideal, really, isn't it? And there was that brilliant first Prime Minister's Questions when she laid on the Thatcher comparison by having a slamming at Corbyn and then leaning forward and saying, remind you of anybody? <laughs> <laughs> and, and if Corbyn was a man with wit and, and a facility for quick thought, he isn't. <laughs> uh, he, he, he could have responded and said, yes, actually, you do remind me of someone and, frankly, the country should be terrified. You know, if, 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 you, if you're going to believe that, and I'm, I'm not making that point, but, but, you know, obviously on his side... But he doesn't. He just flustered and flapped and... And you talk about, in a crisis, people turn to women. But, you know, Angela Eagle was looking like she was going to be the Labour leader, and then suddenly, where's she, mm. she now? She, she could have been, but Labour doesn't really do women, it seems. Yeah. Unless they want pink buses. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not let's get too bogged down in, in Labour, because that's an entirely different... Uh, yes. An entirely um, different mess. So, to re we've now got Theresa May installed in uh, number 10. She then does this reshuffle, and... Nobody really expected Boris Johnson to end up in the Foreign Office. Uh, Matthew, do, was it, I think it was during the campaign you wrote a fairly strongly worded column about <laughs> Boris Johnson. Uh, yes, no, 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 some time before it, the, it's the campaign. It's fair to say. Well, you, you based, I, did, I did print off a little bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share it just so you get some idea. Incompetence is not funny. Policy vacuum is not funny. A careless disregard for the truth is not funny. Advising old mates planning to beat someone up is not funny. Abortions and gagging orders are not funny. Creeping ambition in a jester's cap is not funny. Vacuity posing as merriment. Cynicism posing as savviness. A wink and a smile covering for betrayal. These things are not funny. <laughs> well, so you pleased he's foreign secretary? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I would say so. It's the ideal job. He can't, <laughs> he can't do any harm as foreign, foreign Secretary, and he's bound into the government and the government's programme, and he'll be fine. He'll be absolutely fine as, as Foreign Secretary. And what about the other sort of Deputy Foreign Secretaries? You've got Liam Fox's International Trade and uh, David Davis's Brexit Secretary, this sort of weird... I think that's the threesome. problem, is that the, the weird threesome really is very weird, and I did notice today when they had their big Brexit conversation at Chequers, that Boris is the one sitting next to Theresa, which they won't like. There will have been a lot of fuss about that. And they they all sat on his lap, maybe, yeah. so they're all just as close. All prima donnas. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think it's going to be quite difficult, but I think keeping those three in check is going to be you know, fairly full time. So I I'm just love the idea of the three of them all in the same house. And I, I, The one way to stop Peter Brooks ever... Uh, using an idea is to is to put the idea to him because he likes to have his own ideas rather than get ideas from other people. So we never will see the cartoon of the three little pigs, um, uh, <laughs> Fox, uh, Boris, and Davis, uh, it, all together in in the house, and a big Mrs. Merkel like a wolf on, on the outside, and her saying, "I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down." It would have made a lovely cartoon. I quite liked the image of, of them arguing over the hot tub. You've been in long enough, Boris. Uh, maybe that just reflects me. <laughs> Presumably for you as a sketch writer, you're delighted to have these uh, big beasts, the, you know, the characters back on the front line. Well, absolutely. I mean, Boris is, is a dream. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. But he hasn't gaffed so far. He, he went to Paris and he, he gave a press conference in French, which was actually quite... A, I wrote on, on Twitter that I found this very impressive and was actually quite proud. And people said, how can you find it pr- proud? But I can't think of many British politicians who would have done that. Tony Blair, perhaps Nick Clegg, certainly. But not many would have gone and done a press conference without a translator. Um, and he's already fighting the ground war via the cats, which I'm quite impressed with. Have you been following? There's the, the Diplomog, he's known as, the Foreign Office cat, Palmerston, has been picking fights with Larry, the Downing Street cat, and Larry has been limping back in the morning. And, and now, now Philip Hammond's got a treasury cat, Gladstone. Gladstone. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, having um, beaching or something like that. <laughs> Poor Belisha. Everyone should have a cat. Well, not me, but every downing, every department. Every department should have a cat. Should have a cat. Yeah. Then they can cut it, cut it, and make huge savings afterwards. Well, just leave them to run the departments. <laughs> and so now we now we move forward. So we've now we're now fifty days in. Theresa, what we still don't really know what sort of prime minister she's going to be, do we? No, and I think there's always that fear that, as with Gordon Brown, he had a very good first fifty days, and then it all went horribly wrong. Which is partly why I think she's making it very clear she does not want to have a general election again because that's what really ruined it for Gordon. Do you um, think she will end up having an early No, day? I don't think she will. Really? And I think it's because we have fixed parliaments now. It's much better for her if she plays out this parliament and then goes again. And I think that she knows that, and that will make it easier for her than it was for Gordon. And she's a very different character anyway. She doesn't go around screaming at people. I mean, she really is an ice maiden. I've, I've seen her <laughs> operation. She is very calm and very cool. There's a, there's, a, there's a brilliant anecdote. I think it was in the David Law's book of the Coalition where... Uh, Nick Clegg comes back from a really difficult meeting with Theresa May, and he was saying, "We've got it, you know. We're not doing that." She says, "Yes, we are." So we're not doing that. Yes, we are. And he goes back and complains to David Cameron and says, "She just won't move." I keep, you know, I keep offering we could a bit of compromise. She just won't move on anything. And he said, "Oh, thank goodness, she's like that with me as well." <laughs> <laughs> and that's just how she treated everyone. Everyone. Uh, somebody told me that um, there's a, it, amongst ministers, particularly even cabinet ministers, you only have two sorts of relationships with Theresa May. You either have a terrible relationship or no relationship at all. <laughs> well, she is, as Ken Clark, Ken Clark famously said, called her Mike, she's a bloody difficult woman. And he meant that as a compliment. And if someone at Tory HQ is savvy, they will have T-shirts made up with, I'm a bloody difficult well, she woman. Did, she did. My wife has asked if we can get a T-shirt for our five-year-old daughter saying, I'm a bloody difficult woman. Because actually... Ken meant it as pride, and I'm sure she'll have taken that, that as a badge of pride. She did play up to it in the, in the very, very short-lived leadership campaign. I think she did use it mm. in one of, her, one of her speeches as well. So, so what happens now? We're, we're, the Parliament returns next week. Brexit still means Brexit, but what, what does that mean? Any ideas? Well, j- j- just on, 
on Theresa May, I, I, I don't claim to know her well, but I have met her socially a, a, a couple of times, and I, I'm not sure the, the kind of uh, rude, uh, silent, obstructive ice maiden image captures the whole of her. I, I found her perfectly polite, quite fun, uh, quite a good sense of humor. I, I, I think it's a little early for us to decide what sort of a person she is. She's been fighting a fairly lonely battle and been pretty much excluded by the, the Etonians, by, by, by Osborne and by Cameron for, for the last four or five years. So she, now she comes out into the sun, we may see a different person. But I don't think that personalities matter. I, I'm, um, I'm a Marxist to the extent that I, th I think that, that great forces, political and economic, move history and that personalities are not usually as important in, and that in the face of great, great forces and, and insoluble dilemmas, uh, per personalities are just, flim just flimsy, just, um, just futile. Uh, I think she's strong. I think she's going to be the best prime minister she can be and the best we could have. But what she faces is uh, what, what haunts me as, as someone who was really passionately for Remain, and, and still think that we should have stayed, and I'm still still bitterly sorry that we're leaving, and I'm I'm quite ashamed of of the, the of, of the Britain that made the decision that it did. But we Remainers had one very strong argument during the campaign, which was that any attempt to maintain access to the single market and to have our cake with the single market without actually being in the European Union uh, was a, a really bad idea, we said. Uh, look at Norway, we said. They have to pay, but they still have to abide by all the rules, and they have no say in how the rules are made. Look at Switzerland, we said. The same thing. So we can't be, we said, half in, half out. And this half in, half out association with the European Union that some of the levers were talking about just wasn't on. We, we could not, by in a, in a semi-detached relationship with the European Union, be in a, put ourselves in a better position than we are at the moment as a full member. Well, I believed that when I said it, and I still believe it. Um, it's the devil or the deep blue sea. And the devil, you may say, is the European Union, and the deep blue sea is hard Brexit. It's complete disassociation from the European Union, nothing to do with the single market, no special access to the single market. Make our way in the world like Singapore or, or India or Albania or anybody else and rely on our own native genius. And, and, that, and that's a strong argument. I think that the hard Brexit people have a stronger argument than those like me who rather wish that we could find a middle position between the devil and the deep blue sea. And I don't think that we can. And part of the problem with Brexit means Brexit is the longer that that's gone on for, Brexit means Brexit means something different to everyone. Whether in, and on Redbox this morning, we went through uh, what every cabinet minister had said, even since the referendum, about what they think Brexit will look like and their concerns and what they want. And they're all different. And you can't even reconcile it around the, around even the cabinet that table. They're all changing their minds. Yes, so exactly. Philip Hammond seems yeah. to have changed greatly on whether he thinks we can be a, yes. a single market and... I think it's very hard. I think we're all changing our mind. And you go away on holiday and you forget about it for a couple of weeks and then you come back and it starts all over again. I think to think that it's going to be solved in any short period, 
What you do see with Theresa when you saw it today when she gave her speech is she's desperate not just to spend her entire time in Downing Street talking about Brexit. She's desperate to do other things as well. And that's what's going to be difficult, is trying to get anything else done in Britain for the next few years. And I think we need to try and do that too. And tomorrow she's chairing her first social reform mm. cabinet committee because she's really, this stuff about, uh, you know, uh, Britain where everybody gets on, that's her big, her big theme that, that she's trying to push through. But Brexit seems to be swamping it. Well, I think we can't do anything on the NHS. There are whole areas that we've got to make decisions on. Like, you know, do we have another well, It's all right, we've got to get all the money back from Brussels for the yes. NHS. That's, that's and, yes, exactly. And then I think there are whole areas like farmers, when the farmers really have absolutely no idea what is going to happen to them in the next years. And, you know, they're, they're used they've got to Andrew Leadsom. Yes, and they've got Andrew Leadsom. Obviously, it's been fantastic, but I think it's, it's very tough. <laughs> You're a farmer or an Andrew Ledson fan? <laughs> no, very good, very good. Um, what, do you, what, what do you think? What do you think Brexit means? Brexit means. Well, I mean, I, as a classicist like Boris Johnson, I tell you that Brexit is third person singular, perfect indicative, meaning a completed act, and so therefore it's a completely fallacious word. It, we need we need the future subjunctive if there's such a thing, Brecturus esse or something like that. Um, that's, that's the most detailed answer I, I've heard on what Brexit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You ought to be in the cabinet. <laughs> um, I, I don't really have a clue what Brexit means. I think what I'm reassured by with Theresa May is that she hasn't rushed to do anything on anything. I mean, she's, she's, she's been to, to Henley, the proms and lords. As of, I, I could be prime minister. I, I, that's been my summer oh, as well. Oh, that beard, you can't. No, well, then I'd become a Corbynist, you oh, see. Oh, yeah, Corbynista. Um, but I, Theresa May's schoolgirl hero uh, was Geoffrey Boycott. She used to have a poster of the England batsman on her wall. <laughs> and Boycott was famous for being unflashy, steady, but cussed and would get on with the job and never matter how many enemies he'd make, he'd see it through. And I, th I think she's got a lot of those qualities. So I'm, I don't know what Brexit means, but I think she will spend a long time trying to work out what it means. And as Alice says, she will also concentrate on the other things. Nick Timothy, her chief of staff, has, his hero, um, Joseph Chamberlain, the great re re reformer in Birmingham at the, at the end of the 19th century. And he, he's got a vision, which he follows, of, of reforming Britain in that as a paternal sense. So I think there's a lot of promise. And she's going to have a much easier party conference than, than Labour are going to have. <laughs> she, she's got security, for a start. Yeah, and she can, she, they'll be able to fill <laughs> the agenda with front benches, which uh, the Labour Party might be struggling with. On the, um, when Theresa May talks about a, a Britain for everyone, not just a privileged few, and bringing together the gaping chasm between wealthy London and the rest of the country. This is stuff that politicians always say, isn't it? And it, isn't it? I think it's particularly pertinent now because I think the vote really did feel as if it was people voting in a divided country much more than it ever has before. And it was something that David Tamron didn't get. And I think it very much came out as well of the recession and the problems that we've had for the last decade with the economy and that it felt that the people who'd messed up in London and the people who were messing up the economy had actually come out of it rather well and were still making money and were doing better and better and the rich were getting richer and richer. And everyone else who hadn't really been involved in the mess was actually coming out of it far worse and was trying to pick up the pieces and most people hadn't really had a pay rise and hadn't seen much and were keep, you know, constantly being told that we were going to have to cut back and you know, we weren't all in it together, and George Osborne kept saying we were, but people obviously didn't think mm. that. It became, he didn't notice it had become a joke. That was yes. the problem. Yes, I mean, it, it was very It became difficult. a punchline on mm. panel shows, mm. but he, he hadn't seemed to notice that. Um, Matthew, how, how do you think she'll deal with the fact that she has still only got a majority of a dozen or so, and she's got to try and, uh, you know, and she's already now talking about doing things like grammar schools that weren't even in the 
Tory party manifesto, and she's made enemies of the ministers that she sacked. I, I don't know how she's going to deal with it, and I don't see how she can. Uh, a majority of 13 or whatever it is j just isn't enough. Um, John Major ended up with fewer than that, but he started with more than that, and it wasn't enough. In many ways, John Major is a kind of flawed prototype uh, for, for Theresa May, the, 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 the classless Britain, the Britain comfortable in its own skin, the end of the hegemony of the old Etonians. That's Majorism. And um, I hope that she can make a, a better go of it than, than he succeeded in doing. I, I think she's absolutely serious about it, but I'm not sure she's going to get the chance because anything remotely controversial, she's going to have to build bridges to the parliamentary Labour Party if she's to get anything remotely controversial through. And I'm not quite sure if she's disposed to do that. Well, as, as you brought it up, let's, let's touch on Labour. Before we uh, do a question, let's, let's talk about the Labour Party. What do we think is going to happen? I don't think we even need to ask the question, is who's going to win? That's the problem, is that... Hands up if you're interested in what happens in the Labour leadership contest. Oh, there we are. Don't we know, though, what's going to happen in the Labour leadership Yeah. So that's, that's the problem, is that actually... They, we desperately need an opposition in this country, and we haven't had one. And part of the reason that we've had so many problems recently, I think, is because we haven't had an opposition. So when you haven't got an opposition, the Tory party turns itself into its own opposition and starts fighting themselves. <laughs> and that's exactly what the Tory party don't need. They need to have a strong opposition again, I think. Well, there have been two oppositions. You're right, the Tory backbenchers who want to make things difficult. And also the House of Lords. And, and Labour in the House of Lords have, have actually overturned a lot of legislation with, with the Lib Dems, who apparently don't like the House of Lords, but they're quite happy to have 100 peers. And, and <laughs> they, they're happy to have anyone, I think. But they, they've been highly successful, and one of the stars of the Labour Party has been Baroness Smith of Baddelton, their leader, who She's refuses good. to sit in the shadow cabinet with Jeremy Corbyn, as does the Chief Whip in the, in the House of Lords. And that tells you everything, well, tells you one, one of many things, that, that when the stars are working with the Labour leadership, then he is bust. He will win. He will undeniably win. Our poll today showed he's going to win by a long way. But can he fill a shadow cabinet? Possibly not. Um, can, can he actually develop any sort of program for opposition? I mean, he's disorganised. Uh, he, he doesn't know what he wants. Owen Smith should be going around telling every meeting he attends something that he's just let slip as, it, as if it's just a careless fact. But that he and Corbyn, when he was shadow work and pension secretary, discussed um, work credit, tax credits, and, and poverty once in nine months. That's disgraceful for the Labour Party to only discuss the, the poor once. Uh, but the trouble is, Owen Smith is, is scared, understandably, of being attacked by the, the corporatists, so he doesn't turn his greatest strength in, into a fighting point. What's going to happen? I don't know. I, I don't know if they have the spine to split. So we may grumble on and we'll have another leadership contest next year, which is what Jeremy Corbyn wanted. In 2003, he said the Labour Party should have an annual leadership contest because it's good for invigorating the party. I, I think a, a danger commenting on this from the outside is that we, we tend to think the Labour Party is divided into... Uh, two separate groups. One, the mad lefties led by Jeremy Corbyn, and the other, the sensible, sane, moderate majority of, in the parliamentary Labour Party. But the parliamentary Labour Party is, is not homogenous. Uh, there's the old-fashioned Labour Party, the Labour Party of the North of England, the Labour Party of the trade unions, the Labour Party of blue-collar workers, and, and, um, and, and, and what used to be called the working class, that's actually deeply deeply conservative with a, a small c, not particularly left-wing, but in no sense a kind of metropolitan liberal party. And then you have, you have, the, you have the Yvette Coopers and the, 
and, and, and the Tristram Hunts and, and, and the what you might call the Metropolitan Liberals, the Roy Jenkinsite sort of members of the uh, Labour Party in the House of Commons, and they're completely different kettles of fish. Uh, Danny Finkelstein wrote uh, what I think is a definitive article on this two, two or three weeks ago. So, so once Corbyn has won, and once the Parliamentary Labour Party has come to the conclusion that none of them like Corbyn or his leadership, it is at that point that any sort of unity in the Parliamentary Labour Party, I think, ceases and begins to break up. I don't think they know who they would be or what they would want to do next. There's I don't think they'd agree. There's a suggestion Phil Collins wrote a couple of weeks ago that some of them might form another group under the cooperative label. So there's, I think there's about 25 were elected as Labour-stroke cooperative party members, and they might take that official term and become a sort of a, a temporary Labour Party in exile. But because they would have a party that already exists, they could present themselves to John Burko if there's more than the loyal ones to Corbyn as the official opposition. And once they've done that, not only could whoever they designate as their leader put the questions in Prime Minister's questions, but they could have chairmanship of certain committees, they can uh, guide the agenda for what they discuss on the opposition day debates, they can get more people on question time and actually build a base. And Phil seems to believe that they do that for a couple of years and then people would see they're being efficient and they just merge back into the Labour Party. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But um, I, when the Labour NEC said that uh, Corbyn could stand on the ballot without needing to get the signatures, which he was never going to get. I sent a, a text message to a friend of mine who's a special advisor for someone on the, the right of the Labour Party, um, commiserating and just saying, let me buy you lunch at party conference to make up for it. And she said, that'd be lovely. I'll tell you which conference we'll be at. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, do you think there's anyone in the non-Corbyn part of the Labour Party who is capable of orchestrating and then uh, orchestrating a split and then leading it. Because I, I sort of feel like if there was, they could have possibly beaten Jeremy Corbyn last year or possibly beaten him this year. The, yeah, the, I think that is the problem. There isn't anyone who's got the sort of gumption to do We saw this happen it. for the Tories for a very long period of time. There wasn't an obvious leader, and that's what they've been lucky about this time with Theresa May because she was the obvious candidate. But, you know, it went on a very long time in the Tory party, and Andrew Eagle actually was quite a good candidate in some ways for them, and they, they didn't like her... And I think Phil Collins actually would be rather good, I have to say, personally. <laughs> we all think journalists um, would be much better than, uh, than politicians. But, um, but it is very hard, and that's why they're having the problem. If someone stood out, they would be able to do... But they would, if, they would if there was somebody who stood out, they wouldn't hmm. be in this mess uh, as they are now. And so, as I always sign off uh, my, my uh, red box emails in the morning, Jeremy Corbyn clings on, obviously. obviously. Yeah. Uh, because despite him losing half the shadow cabinet, a vote of no confidence likening Israel to ISIS and everything else. He just keeps on going, and uh, he will do after September the 24th. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.